Section 18 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Mobley. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 2, Book 2, Chapter 17, Shrikes, Thrushes, and Their Allies, Swallows, Lyrebirds, Chatterers, Broadbills, etc. by W. P. Pycraft. The Shrike family are an exceedingly interesting group of birds of worldwide distribution and of great diversity of appearance, varying in size from a bird as small as a titmouse to one as large as a thrush, and presenting a considerable range of coloration, some being very brightly, others dull-colored. From the hooked beak and the presence of a notch in the tip of the upper jaw, they were considered by the older naturalists to be allies of the birds of prey, a decision still further supported by their hawk-like habit of capturing living prey in the shape of small birds and mice. Whilst the remarkable custom of impaling their victims still living on thorns has earned for them the popular name of butcher birds. The limits of the family, owing to the diversity of the forms involved, have not as yet been finally determined by naturalists, some having included species which others hold have no place there. Five species are commonly included in the list of British birds, although only two occur with any frequency. Of these, the great gray shrike visits Great Britain every winter, whilst the smaller red-backed shrike is an annual summer visitor to those islands, breeding, however, only in England, occurring but occasionally in Scotland, and being almost unknown in Ireland, where only one specimen has ever been recorded. The red-backed shrike, writes Dr. Sharp, reminds us of a flycatcher in the way in which it captures its food, for it has undoubtedly favorite perches on which it sits and to which it returns after the capture of an insect. It is frequently to be seen on telegraph wires, where it keeps a sharp lookout in every direction, and a favorite resort is a field of freshly cut grass. It also captures a good many mice and small birds, not pursuing them in the open like birds of prey, but dropping down on them suddenly. In the British Museum is a very good specimen of the larder of a red-backed shrike, taken with the nest of the bird by Lord Walsingham in Norfolk, and showing the way in which the shrike spits insects and birds on thorns, and the species has been known to hang up birds even bigger than itself, such as blackbirds and thrushes, as well as tits of several kinds, robins and hedge sparrows, while it will also occasionally seize young partridges and pheasants. Though undeniably unmusical, the red-backed shrike is nevertheless able to imitate with considerable success the notes of other small birds, decoying them by this means within striking distance, an accomplishment shared also by other members of the shrike family. The present species is attractively clothed in a plumage varied with black, gray, rufous, and chestnut brown, the last being the predominating hue of the upper parts, hence the name red-backed shrike. Habits of its congener, the great gray shrike, are precisely similar. A caged specimen which has become very tame would take food from its captor's hands. When a bird was given it, the skull was invariably broken at once, after which, holding the body in its claws, the shrike would proceed to tear it in pieces after the fashion of a hawk. Sometimes, instead, the carcass would be forced through the bars of the cage in lieu of thorns and then pulled in pieces. 
Very different in appearance from the other members of the Shrike family are a group of possibly allied forms known as waxwings. Of pleasing but sober coloration, they are remarkable for certain curious appendages to the inner quill feathers of a bright sealing wax red color, from which they derive their name. Similar wax-like appendages also occur sometimes on the tail feathers. Breeding in the Arctic Circle, waxwings occur in both the Old and New Worlds, though some species peculiar to the latter region lack the wax-like appendages characteristic of the majority of the species. These birds are erratic in their movement, and large bands occasionally visit the British islands during the autumn and winter, the eastern counties being usually the most favored spots. But on the occasion of one of these immigrations, in the winter of 1872, Many were seen in the neighborhood of the north of London. During the summer, they feed on insects, but in autumn and winter on berries and fruit. At this time, they become very fat and are then captured and sold in large numbers for food in the Russian markets and occasionally are sent over to London. Passing over a small group of comparatively uninteresting American birds known as greenlets, we come to the warblers, a group which constitutes one of the largest families of birds in the Old World. The species included in this family vary greatly in their characters, so that it is by no means easy to give diagnostic characters, whereby they may be readily distinguished from the flycatchers on the one hand or the thrushes on the other. The thrushes, however, as a group, may be distinguished from the warblers by the circumstance that in the former, the young have a distinctive spotted plumage, differing from that of the adults. While the young of the warblers are not so marked, their plumage differing but little from that of their parents. More than 20 species of warblers are included amongst British birds. Although some of them are but rare and accidental visitors in Britain, others are amongst the commonest of the spring migrants, remaining to the nest and leaving again in the autumn. Some as the black cap, white throat, chief chaff, garden, willow, and wood warblers, frequent woods, hedgerows, and gardens, whilst others, as the sedge and reed warblers, are found only near water affording sufficient shelter in the shape of reed banks or osier plantations. The black cap and garden warbler rank as songsters of no mean talent, being held second only to the nightingale. As if by common consent, the two former never clash, so that where black caps are common, there are few garden warblers and vice versa. Most of these birds build a typical cup-shaped nest of dried grasses lined with finer materials and placed near the ground, but that of the reed warbler is a most beautiful structure, the dried grass of which it is made being woven around some three or four reed stems, making it seem as if the latter had, in growing up, pierced the sides of the nest in their course. The cup-shaped hollow is very deep so that when the supporting reeds are bowed low in the breeze, the eggs rest perfectly safe. We must pass now to a consideration of the thrush tribe, which, as we have already hinted, are very closely allied to the warblers. Birds like the common thrush and the blackbird are so common and so well known that they scarcely need comment here. The same perhaps is true of many other members of this group not popularly associated with the thrush tribe, such as the redbreast or robin redbreast, as it is more generally called, and the nightingale. Few birds have inspired so many writers as the nightingale. It even holds a place in classical mythology. Professor Newton gives us one variant of the very common but pretty story. 
Procne and Philomela were the daughters of Pandion, king of Attica, who in return for warlike aid rendered him by Tereus, king of the Daulis in Thrace, gave him the first named in marriage. Tereus, however, being enamored of her sister, feigned that his wife was dead, and induced Philomela to take her place. On her discovering the truth, he cut out her tongue to hinder her from revealing his deceit. But she depicted her sad story on a robe which was sent to Procne, and the two sisters then contrived a horrible revenge for the infidelity of Tereus by killing and serving to him at table his son Ides. Thereupon the gods interposed, changing Tereus into a hoopoe, Procne into a swallow, and Philomelo into a nightingale, while Ides was restored to life as a pheasant, and Pandion, who had died of grief at his daughter's dishonor, as a bird of prey, the osprey. A not infrequent error with regard to the red breast may be pointed out here. Many people seem to suppose that the female is less brilliantly colored than her mate. As a matter of fact, this is not so. What are generally regarded as females of the species are the dull spotted young which, as we have already pointed out, assume this peculiar livery throughout the tribe. No less common in Britain, during the summer months at least, are the wheat ears, stone chats, wind chats, and red starts. Small and prettily colored species, these are all insect eaters and, with the exception of the wheat ears, lay blue eggs deposited in somewhat coarsely constructed nests, placed on or near the ground, or in holes and ruins, trees or walls in the case of the red starts, or in burrows or under ledges of rock as among the weed ears, which lay white eggs. The bird commonly known as the hedge sparrow is a close ally of the thrush family, having nothing to do with the sparrows proper, which are finches, as its name would imply. Another nearly related form is the dipper or water oozel. By no means brilliantly colored, it is nevertheless an exceedingly interesting bird, and one never met with away from mountain streams. The group has a wide distribution, occurring in suitable localities in Europe, Asia, and the Rocky Mountains of America, and extending from Colombia to Peru in Tucumán. Squat in form, with rounded wings and short tail, the oozel seeks the greater part of its food on the bottom of swiftly running streams. It is everywhere, writes Dr. Sharp, of the commoner of the two British species, a shy and watchful bird, and, except in the breeding season, appears to be solitary. By patient watching near the dipper's haunts, however, it is possible to observe the bird scudding over the surface of the water with a rapid flight and a vigorous beating of the wings, something like that of a kingfisher, until it alights on a rock or large stone in the middle of the stream. Its white breast then stands out in bold relief and, after pausing for a moment, the bird commences to edge to the side of the rock and either walks deliberately into the water or disappears suddenly beneath the surface, seeking its food at the bottom of the stream in the shape of larvae, caddis worms, water beetles, and small snails. The rants are probably near allies of the dippers. The family includes a number of species of small birds, most largely represented in the New World, but distributed widely over the Old World also. Two occur in the British Islands. Of these, one, the common wren, is found throughout Europe and occurs also in Northern Africa, Asia Minor, and North Palestine, whilst the other, the St. Kilda wren, is only found on the island from which it takes its name. 
Considerations of space compel us to pass over three or four families of comparatively little interest to any save the scientific ornithologists in favor of the flycatchers and swallows. The former, and that the young are spotted, appear to evince some affinity to the thrush tribe, but they have broad and flatter bills than the latter, whilst the mouth is surrounded by more or less conspicuous bristles. They are entirely old world forms, having their stronghold in Africa. Three species of flycatcher occur in England, though only one, the common or spotted flycatcher, usually breeds in Great Britain, coming late in the spring from Africa. As its name implies, it feeds upon small insects, capturing them on the wing by sudden sallies, and returning immediately after to some perch, generally a garden fence or the bare bough of a tree. As a rule, the prey is caught with a sudden dart, but sometimes only after prolonged flight, when the bird will double and turn as the necessity arises with great skill. Its nest, made of dry grass and moss, lined with horsehair, and covered externally with spiderwebs and lichens, is usually placed in some sheltered position, such as a crevice in the bark of a tree or in the creepers covering the trellis work of a house, and owing to the skillful way in which it is covered externally, so as to resemble its surroundings, is difficult to find. The swallows and martins constitute an exceedingly well-defined group of birds, and one which holds a conspicuously high place in the regard of mankind, finding a welcome everywhere on account of the great benefits they confer by the removal of insect pests in the shape of the smaller gnats and flies. These, were they not kept and checked by the swallow tribe, would render most parts of the world uninhabitable. Rarely seen upon the ground, save when procuring mud for the construction of their nests, the birds of this group are all peculiarly strong flyers, turning and twisting with the greatest speed and precision. All have very short beaks and wide mouths, long wings and tails, and small and weak feet. A large number build their nests of mud, collected in small pellets and held together by the secretion of the salivary glands. These nests are commonly more or less cup-shaped and fastened under the eaves of dwelling houses or other buildings, or placed in a convenient beam or other ledge. The red-rumped swallows and fairy martins, species enjoying an enormous distribution, being found in India, Africa, America, and Australia, build very large flask-shaped nests having an entrance produced into a funnel often eight or nine inches in length. Others, like the sand martin, excavate long tunnels terminating in larger chambers in the faces of sandbanks, a performance which must certainly be regarded as wonderful when one realizes the feeble tools with which the task of excavating has to be performed. Some species utilize the holes made by other birds, in one species this hole being itself bored within the burrow of the viscasha. All are more or less migratory in their habits, some covering enormous distances and journeying to and fro between their winter retreats and their summer breeding places. The common swallow and house martin, for example, leave the shores of Africa early in the spring and distribute themselves over Europe, thousands visiting the British islands. After rearing in their respective breeding places, from two or three broods, they return with their offspring before the rigors of winter set in to the African continent. The routes and destinations of the swallow are now well known, but as much cannot be said for the house martin, whose winter quarters are as yet enshrouded in mystery. That they must be somewhere in Africa is all that can at present be said.
three species of the swallow tribe visit england regularly every year and remain to breed these are the common or chimney swallow and the house martin just referred to and the little sand martin in the two first mentioned the upper parts are of a dark steel blue color with a metallic gloss but they are nevertheless easily distinguished from one another since the swallow has a deeply forked tail and a bright chestnut patch on the throat with a similarly colored band across the forehead whilst the martin lacks the chestnut markings and is pure white beneath with a large white patch on the lower part of the back and a less markedly forked tail furthermore the legs of the martin are feathered down to the claws whilst the feet of the swallow are bare the sand martin is a little grayish-brown bird with white upper parts it is the earliest of the swallow tribe to arrive in britain and the first to depart lyre birds and scrub birds at the beginning of the account of the perching birds it was stated that the group was divided into two sections and that each of these was further subdivided into two with the swallows the first subdivision is the first section ended the second we are to consider now in the very singular lyre birds and scrub birds of australia rendered conspicuous on account of the remarkable lyrate tail from which the name is derived the lyre birds on closer acquaintance prove to be exceedingly interesting forms though materials for a really complete biography of the three known species are not yet available the males it seems are skilled mimics reproducing the songs of other birds with great fidelity this being especially true of the species known as prince albert's lyrebird during the courting season the males construct hillocks to which they resort to display their very beautiful and graceful tails elevating them over the head and drooping the wings after the fashion of a peacock accompanying this display with a certain spasmodic pecking and scratching actions they are solitary birds more than a pair never being seen together and even these are exceedingly difficult to approach stratagem always being necessary but a single egg is laid which has the appearance of being smeared with ink whilst the young bird differs from that of all other perching birds in the thickness of its downy covering and the great length of time in which it remains in the nest the nest made of sticks moss and fibres skilfully interwoven and lined inside with the leaf of a tree fern which resembles horsehair is a large dome structure with a single aperture serving as an entrance lyre birds are essentially ground dwellers feeding upon insects especially beetles and snails and keeping to the wilder regions of the country the scrub bird is an extremely interesting form scientifically only the males are known at the present time and these are dull-colored birds of the size of a thrush of the female eggs and nest we as yet know absolutely nothing chatterers ant thrushes broadbills etc the second major division of the perching birds embraces a few forms of considerable interest the group of chatterers includes several remarkable forms of very diverse coloration many representing the most gorgeous of all south american birds one of the most remarkable is the umbrella bird this bird is funeral in appearance being clothed in a plumage of deep black with a head surmounted by a large drooping flat-topped crest 
resembling in shape the familiar crest of certain varieties of the canary, whilst from the throat hangs a long lappet of feathers reaching nearly down to the feet. The female is duller than her mate and lacks the peculiar plumes. The umbrella bird is a forest-dwelling species, confined to the upper Amazons and dwelling in the tops of the highest trees where it finds ample sustenance in wild fruits. But few naturalists have ever seen it in a wild state. Equally wonderful are the bellbirds, so called on the account of their note, which bears an extraordinary resemblance to the sound made by a blacksmith upon an anvil, though it has often been likened to the tolling of a bell. Four species are known, and three of which the males have a pure white plumage, with much naked, vividly colored skin on the face. One species has a curious pendulous process hanging from the forehead, thinly covered with feathers. By some, this is said to be capable of erection during periods of excitement. Like the umbrella bird, these are forest-dwelling species. For brilliancy of plumage amongst the chatterers, the palm must be given to the cocks of the rock, in the males of which orange-red predominates, whilst the general effect is heightened by the crests and curiously curled and frayed feathers, growing from the lower part of the back. The males indulge in remarkable love displays, the performances being held in some open space and in the presence of the females. One at a time, each male appears to go through a kind of dance, accompanying this peculiar steps and hops with much swaying of the head and extending of the wings. When tired, the performer gives a signal which is understood by his fellows and retires from the ring, his place being immediately taken by another. The nesting habits of the chatterers vary greatly, some building nests of mud and twigs, which they fasten on projections of rock and damp caves, others simply lining holes in trees with dry grass. Some build a cup-shaped nests of lichens, others a simple platform of sticks, while some of the thick-billed chatterers hang large nests of leaves, plant stalks, and wool from low branches, the entrance to the nest being from a hole in the side. The eggs vary in number among the different species from two to four, and in color may be white, chocolate, pale salmon-colored, or greenish-blue, and are for the most part spotted. Closely allied to the cocks of the rock are the mannequins, for the most part small and thick-set birds, and in many instances brilliantly colored, at least in the case of the males. Some 70 species are known, all of which are confined to South America. They must be sought for, as a rule, in the forests or thick undergrowth of marshy places. The mannequin family contains several species of considerable interest, on account of the peculiar modifications which certain of the quill feathers of the males have undergone. In some species, what are known as the secondary quill feathers are peculiarly twisted and have the shafts much thickened. With these modified feathers, the birds are enabled, probably by clapping the wings and bringing the thickened feathers violently together, to make a sharp sound, which has been likened to the crack of a whip. Other species have the quill feathers of the hand, the primaries, as they are called, similarly thickened, and they are probably also used to produce sounds. One species is known as the bilador, or dancer, on account of a very remarkable habit which the males have of dancing. Two males, choosing some secluded spot, select a bare twig and, taking up a position about a foot and a half apart, alternately jump about two feet in the air and alight again on exactly the same spot from which they sprang. 
With the regularity of clockwork, one bird jumps up the instant the other alights, each bird performing a musical accompaniment to the tune of Tuledu, Tuledu, Tuledu. Uttering the syllable tu as he crouches to spring, lay while in the air, and do as he alights, and this performance appears to be kept up till the birds are exhausted. Some of the mannequins are very beautifully colored. One species, for example, is black, with a blue mantle and a crimson crest. Another, black, with orange-colored cheeks and breast and similarly colored band around the neck, green rump, and yellow abdomen. The females are generally duller in coloration. The ant thrushes, or pittas, are long-legged, short-tailed birds of brilliant coloration, having their headquarters in the Malay archipelago, but the family is represented in India, Australia, and West Africa. These birds are very shy and exceedingly difficult to approach. One species, the large ground thrush, is described by Wallace as one of the most beautiful birds of the East. Velvety black above, relieved by pure white, the shoulders are azure blue, and the belly a vivid crimson. The nest recalls, in the plan of its architecture, that of the oven birds, being more or less globular in form and having a lateral entrance, it is composed of twigs, roots, bark, moss, leaves, and grass, and is frequently cemented with earth. The eggs are usually spotted and have a creamy white ground color. The spots may be brown, reddish-gray, or purplish-black. The curious plant cutters of the temperate regions of South America are nearly related to the chatterers, though at one time it was believed they were allied to the true finches. Constituting but a small family, the plant cutters are remarkable for their strangely serrated beaks, the cutting edges of which are armed with a series of fine saw-like teeth. This beak is used in cutting down plants, and as these birds appear to cut down a great number in sheer wantonness, they are much disliked in the neighborhood of gardens and plantations. Plant cutters are not conspicuous for the beauty of their plumage and have a harsh and grating voice. The wood hewers constitute a group of over 200 species, all of which are South American. They are for the most part small and dull-colored birds, but nevertheless of considerable interest on account of their nest-building habits. The most remarkable members of the family in this respect are three species of oven birds. These construct a massive nest of mud, bearing a more or less fanciful resemblance to a baker's oven, hence the name oven bird. Roughly globular in shape, its walls are of great thickness and to prevent cracking hair and grass fibers are intermixed with the mud. The interior is gained through a small hole on one side of the nest, which leads into a passage terminating in a chamber containing the eggs, which are laid upon a bed of grass. Strangely enough, the bird seeks the most exposed situations, placing its nest on branches, in the forks of trees, on posts, rocks, or housetops. Another species, known to the Spaniards as the Casarita, or little house builder, builds its nest at the bottom of a narrow cylindrical hole, which is said to extend horizontally underground for nearly six feet. Other species build nests of sticks and twigs or of grass, which are divided into chambers after the fashion of the mud nest of the oven bird, the inner chamber being lined with wool and feathers. The variation in the form, habits, and coloration of these birds is very great, some recalling the woodpeckers and tree creepers, others the titmice. 
The family of the tyrant flycatchers, though numbering some 400 species, is less interesting, or rather contains fewer peculiar forms than the mannequin family. The tyrant flycatchers are American birds and represent the flycatchers of the Old World. One of the best known is the kingbird, which is renowned rather for its pugnacious disposition than for beauty of plumage. The crested tyrant bird has a curious habit of lining its nest with the cast-off skins of snakes, a habit which has caused a great deal of discomfort both to juvenile as well as adult egg collectors who, recognizing the skin by the touch, have hurriedly withdrawn the hand lest the owner of the cast-off coat should be in the vicinity. All the tyrant birds are active and restless in their habits and frequent marshy districts sitting alone perched on the dead branches of trees or bushes, whence they dart forth like the old-world flycatchers on their prey. Some species, however, frequent bare plains, others, also ground-dwellers, associate occasionally in flocks. Though the prey, which consists of chiefly insects, is, as a rule, captured on the wing, it is not invariably so. One species, for example, pounces down on crawling beetles, grasps them in its claws, and eats them on the ground. Some other species eat mice, young birds, snakes, frogs, fishes, spiders, and worms, the larger victims being beaten on a branch to kill them. One or two species will eat seeds and berries. The nest is often dome and skillfully felted with moss, lichens, and spiderwebs. The broadbills are the sole representatives of the final subdivision of the perching birds. After the brilliant coloration, the next most striking feature is the great breadth of the bill. Their range is very limited, extending from the lower spurs of the Himalaya through Burma and Siam to Sumatra, Borneo, and Java. They seek the seclusion of forests in the neighborhood of water, exhibiting great partiality for the banks of rivers and lakes and feeding on worms and insects, many of the latter being captured on the wing. The nest of the broadbill is a large and not very neat structure, oval in shape, with an entrance near the top, which is often protected with an overhanging roof. It is generally suspended from a low branch or plants near the water, and made of twigs, roots, and leaves, and lined with finer materials. From three to five eggs are laid. With these birds, probably the most primitive of the perching birds, this section ends. Many forms have inevitably been crowded out, whilst others have been but briefly noticed. Nevertheless, all the really important groups have been more or less completely described, and in the majority of cases, well illustrated. End of section 18